Welcome back, folks. This is part three of Africa and the Great War through 1915. On this episode, I'll be talking about the story of the SMS Konigsberg running amok in East Africa. But there's much more to this saga than just a ship causing havoc in the rivers of Africa. There's planes that get involved to hunt down the Konigsberg. British officers from all walks of life brought aboard the mission. And old-style fighting ships requisitioned to hunt it down. If you're a fan of naval warfare, this one is going to be right up your alley if you don't already know the story. This is going to be a good one, folks. And as I said when I started the Africa series, I know very little about it. But I've got to say the story of the Konigsberg so far is my favorite. Um, admin notes for this episode. I've been receiving a lot of messages regarding folks enjoying the show along with recommendations. Please keep it up. I love engaging with the show's listeners. Um, with that, Bill A, and I won't say full last names. I'll just say the first letter because you never know. Bill messaged me around the beginning of June recommending the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. I checked it out online. Looks amazing. The main room has a lot of exhibits from tanks, planes, to trenches. There's even a VR experience presented by Dan Carlin. Thank you for the recommendation, Bill. I'll absolutely be visiting this soon, and I encourage all those who haven't. Uh, another recommendation I received comes from Kristen, all the way down under in Brisbane, Australia. Kristen recommended the book called The Other Anzacs, a biographical account from nurses who served in the Great War from Egypt to Gallipoli, all the way to the Western Front. Thank you for this recommendation, Kristen. I'll be checking this out. All right, folks, what am I drinking for this episode? This is going to be a shocker. <laughs> right now I'm just drinking ice water. Um, it's July 3rd, the day before 4th of July in America. Um, I got a lot to do this evening, so I don't have time to, to drink. Um, so, yeah, um, that's about it for what I'm drinking this episode. Next one, I'll, uh, I'll have a proper drink. All right, let's say I recap the last episode. On the last episode, I spoke about Louis Botha taking the Union of South Africa soldiers and leading an invasion into Germany's Southwest Territory, today known as the nation of Namibia. Out the gate, it didn't look good for the British loyalists after the Germans held them back. Even with a much lower number in troop size, the Schutztroop proved to be a better trained soldier. Botha and the Union regrouped and built their numbers up after pulling in colonists from an amnesty who had re recently been defeated after an uprising to gain their independence. There's nothing like having an uprising to gain your independence, and then you get pulled into a war. Botha persuaded them to join together to drive the Germans out. Common interest, they didn't like Germans. Or, at least some didn't. But waging a war wasn't easy on a front like this. There were challenges. Challenges such as the lack of good water source. And in the Namibia desert, having drinking water was a matter of life or death. They had to ship in water sometimes from 800 miles away in makeshift water transports built by engineers. But sometimes even this wasn't the best water. Botha even got sick off the water and had to be nursed back to health by his wife. 
I did mention this, but Botha will end up passing away from the Spanish influenza in August of 1919. Overall, the Union of South Africa successfully drove the Germans back, causing them to surrender. This was the first successful completion of a planned ground attack by the British as a whole for the Great War, with very little casualties compared to the other battles in 1914 and 1915. If you haven't listened to episode 57, please do so. I think you're going to enjoy it. Now, I'll dive into the story of the SMS Konigsberg. Following the outbreak of the Great War in 1914, the Imperial German Navy had several ships prowling through the oceans, causing distress to the Allies, particularly to the British Royal Navy. The SMS Konigsberg was one of them. SMS stands for Sign Magistatschiff, which translates to His Majesty's Ship. Much like the Schlieffen plan, the Imperial Navy also had a plan for its ships in case war broke out. They called it the Kreuzerkrieg. German warships were on course, preying upon enemy ships, including resupply ships, and liners filled with civilian passengers, but that was a previous episode. In 1913, Admiral Herbert King Hall was appointed to Commander-in-Chief of the Good Hope Station in South Africa. It was King Hall who first sounded the alarm regarding the Konigsberg, posing a threat to the Royal Fleet. The Konigsberg, built in 1905, had recently been refitted. She hailed in at around 3,400 tons and was 126 yards in length. Not only was she slimmer and longer than comparable British vessels, She was also 24 knots faster. The ship also carried two torpedo tubes, two 88mm guns, and 10 105mm howitzers. On April 25th, the Konigsberg, commanded by Captain Max Luf, steamed out of Kiel, heading for a two-year cruise. The ship was scheduled to make way for German East Africa as an intimidating addition for Dar es Salaam. Dar es Salaam is a port city in today's nation of Tanzania. Around 1865, Sultan Majid bin Said of Zanzibar put his eye on a new city across the water. Zanzibar is an island off Tanzania, north of Dar es Salaam. Well, Majid bin Said is really the one who is credited for building the city of Dar es Salaam. However, After the Sultan's death in 1870, the city fell into a decline. That is until the German East Africa Company came in and built a station there. The town began to grow following an industrial expansion after the construction of a central railway. The Konigsberg headed south, then made its way through the Straits of Gibraltar into the Mediterranean. She ported in Spain and Italy before passing through the Suez Canal into the Red Sea, then anchoring at Dar es Salaam on the 6th of June, 1914. This was the most powerful ship ever seen at Dar es Salaam. The ship was meant to be intimidating. The Kaiser wanted people to be in awe. She was an impressive sight, no doubt, as pictures show. After the Archduke was assassinated and negotiations seemed to fail one after the other, when the war had become imminent, Captain Luf was ordered to put the Konigsberg to sea on July 31st. Go forth and conquer. 
Admiral King Hall had anticipated this and ordered the German small cruiser to be followed. Almost immediately after leaving Dar es Salaam's harbor, Captain Liu found himself boxed in by three British warships, the Astrea, Hyacinth, and the Pegasus. All three warships were armed to the teeth. However, they were much slower than the Konigsberg. Plus, Germany and Britain hadn't declared war on each other yet, so for now, all they could do was follow. And you'll have to imagine how tense this was. Just days prior to leaving the harbor on July 28th, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. August 1st, Germany declares war on Russia. You know, this is building up really quick. Now you have three warships literally following Luf. At any given moment, the word could be given that the two are now at war and it's who gets the message first, fires first. Now, Luf had power to take the Konigsberg to its full 24 knots, which in turn, he would outrun the warships. But he doesn't do this. He holds steady at a 12 knot pace. He's literally standing on the ship's port side, chain smoking cigarettes as he's watching the Estrella in plain sight, and he's also watching an oncoming monsoon approaching from the southwest. And this went on for probably a few hours. Why? I don't know. Maybe there was some subliminal message he was sending or something. Well, finally, Luf ordered the quartermaster to make a hard turn to starboard and to make the engines full speed. The Konigsberg easily escaped the standoff with the British. By the end of the day, on August 1st, Luf and his men were in shipping lanes of, of freighters using the Suez Canal. They were safe. On the evening of August 5th, the crew of the Konigsberg received the word that Germany was now at war with Russia, France, and the British. On August 6th, a supply ship at Dar es Salaam named the Somalia was ordered to rendezvous with the Konigsberg. Working night and day to get the ship loaded, it barely escaped the harbor in time for the arrival of the British warships on the 8th of August. Luf and his crew jumped into action, first sending wireless messages to German ships, warning them to make way towards German or neutral ports, then shutting down the communication line, only receiving incoming calls. But the main concern for Luf and his crew was coal and supplies. When Luf left the harbor on the 31st, he had only 830 tons. Already by the 6th of August, he was down to 200 tons of coal. When the Konigsberg was finally able to meet up with the Somalian in Gwar... I always have trouble saying this word. Gardafu? I think I said that right. Gardafu? The ship had only 14 tons of coal, and drinking water had been rationed down to one-third of a liter. Now that she had been resupplied with 850 tons of fresh coal, fresh water, mail and care packages from home, this rekindled the fire of motivation within the crew. Luf made a decision to take the ship towards Madagascar in hopes of requisitioning supplies and coal from French, French freighters. However, in this part of the Indian Ocean, Allied ships had taken shelter at the harbor of Diego Suarez under, under the protection of heavy guns. Low on coal again, 
Luf met with a Somalia on August 23rd, northwest of Madagascar. But this time, the Somalia only had 250 tons to give, and the rough seas made it almost impossible to transfer. Luf managed getting a four-day supply and then arranged another link-up at the Rufiji River. Here, the transfer of coal and supplies could easily be accomplished along with getting some engine work done. The Rufiji River is a delta river system running through the eastern part of Tanzania, south of Dar es Salaam. It looks beautiful in pictures, but it's filled with hippos and crocodiles. Both would gladly have you for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, maybe even dessert. This isn't a place you want to go overboard. On the 3rd of September, the Konigsberg crossed into the delta in just five meters of water. German officials ashore restocked the ship with the latest maps, provisions, coal, and conducted some touch-ups and repairs. The Germans also set up communication lines for telephones and telegraph lines, as well as establishing overwatch positions to protect the ship. The Konigsberg was all stocked up and ready to go when on the 19th of September, Luf received word that the British warship HMS Pegasus entered the harbor at Zanzibar. Luf quickly moved the ship out of the delta and into the sea, heading north to the island. Zanzibar is roughly about 100 miles north of the delta. It isn't far. 24 knots, what is it, around 27 miles per hour. Luf could have made it in around four to five hours time, I think, but he didn't. He wanted to sneak in as the sun rose the next day. Around 5 a.m. the following morning, the Konigsberg crept into the harbor. Luf found Pegasus anchored broadside 200 yards offshore. Luf raised the battle flag and pushed towards the British warship, firing its 105mm guns from portside. Pegasus answered with its own shots, but were very ineffective. The Konigsberg fired a salvo from the starboard side, and within 20 minutes the Pegasus was ablaze, surrounded by black smoke. In all, the Pegasus took more than 200 hits. 31 crew members, including two officers, were dead. 55 were badly wounded. Not a single German aboard the Konigsberg received a scratch. The Konigsberg was on a tear. The British placed a picket ship called the Helmut towards the entrance of the harbor that had failed to detect the German ship. On the way out, Luf had spotted it and pumped three shells into the picket ship as it passed. Three shells is all it needed because the Helmut exploded going up in flames. Luf paid no mind to the survivors as they jumped into the shark infested waters. It was of no concern to him. Luf was like a shark himself. He got a taste for blood and wanted more. He wanted to take the Konigsberg to the Cape of Good Hope, but boiler problems on the ship changed that plan. He again took the ship into the delta of the Rufiji, this time to a place called Salel, which actually wasn't too far from the main ocean. Only in the delta was the ship safe for much needed repairs. Hundreds of miles of dirt roads created paths from Dar es Salaam to the ship. 
Thousands of Africans were recruited to move tons of parts back and forth. Luf positioned field guns and machine guns at the mouth of the refugi. Signaling stations were set up. It was all hands on deck to protect and support the ship and its crew. And the Somalia continued to bring in supplies and new parts. Stated earlier, Admiral King Hall was concerned about the Konigsberg even before war was declared. He knew its capabilities, he knew its purpose, and that was to cause havoc. A ship like this was built for one reason, to seek and destroy. And now his fears about the Konigsberg became a reality. The priority for the British Navy in Africa was to find and eliminate it. A lot of reports piled in with people guessing its whereabouts, but the majority of these claims weren't reliable. The best educated guess was that Luf and his ship were taking refuge somewhere in the refugee delta. But you're talking a vast delta. It's very large. It could be anywhere at this point. The HMS Chatham was called in to hunt and destroy the Konigsberg, along with the HMS Weymouth and Dartmouth. The Chatham arrived in Zanzibar towards the end of September. However, it was put out of commission from the 3rd of October to the 15th of October for small repairs after running aground at a port. On October 19th, the Chatham intercepted the German ship Prosident. The Germans claimed it was a hospital ship, but documents on board showed that it had delivered coal by way of lighters to, the, to Solail in the Rufiji. The British felt they were closing in. It was around this time when the Royal Navy recruited an Afrikaner explorer and hunter by the name of Peter J. Pretorius. His job was to guide them through the Delta. Basically, he was a hired scout. Jan Smuts, also known as J.C. Smuts, was asked by the British to track Peter down and hire him. Smuts had several titles. He was a South African military officer, and I believe he was the defense minister around this time. Smuts helped Pretorius write his autobiography titled Jungle Man. Smuts described Peter as so lost to the civilized world that he was thin and colored brown from continued bouts of malaria. And you can get Pretorius's book today. I found a copy on Amazon for a fairly reasonable price. But Smuts respected Peter, and that's why he agreed to bring him on board as a scout. He later went on to say about Peter, he was courageous, cool in the face of danger, and very resourceful in emergencies. At the time when Smuts was sent to bring Peter on board, the hunter had just returned from German East Africa, where he'd been jailed for murdering 47 natives. Story goes, he and his men were ambushed, and he killed in self-defense. I guess it's really as simple as that. Um, I can't find much written about Pretorius. I I'm sure the autobiography tells a lot more. There's a movie that was released in 1976 titled Shout at the Devil. In fact, I'm just going to make that my movie recommendation for this episode. It stars Lee Marvin, Roger Moore, and Barbara Parkins, who I might respectfully say was a beautiful woman back in her day. The movie is based off true events. 
It's basically based off the Konigsberg. And I believe Lee Marvin's character is based off of Peter Petrorius. At least that's what was apparent to me. Overall, I re recommend it. It's a good movie. Okay. So Peter gets roped in to scout for the British. Another person brought in around this time by King Hall was Dennis Cutler. Dennis was part of the Royal Aero Club and had currently been giving demonstration flights. When King Hall recruited him, he gave Cutler the rank of sub-lieutenant and was put in the Royal Naval Reserves. Both he and Peter were immediately sent to the Delta to start hunting for the Konigsberg. Cutler's plane was kind of fragile or raggedy at the time. On his first flight, the radiator blew out. However, some of the crew remembered seeing a Model T Ford in Mombasa. So the warship HMS Fox was dispatched to fetch it. A 200-mile voyage. Cutler's objective was to land Pretorius somewhere in the Delta to begin his search. But first, Cutler would take the repaired plane up for a solo reconnaissance mission on December 10th. Cutler actually found the Konigsberg but crashed his plane in the Rufiji and was taken prisoner. Not much is known about his time in captivity. As Christmas did on other fronts for the first year of the war, it too brought a break on both sides to celebrate and enjoy the festivities. On New Year's Day 1915, the HMS Fox sent a wireless message. Happy New Year. Expect to have the pleasure of seeing you soon. Sign, British Cruiser. The Germans replied, Many thanks. Same to you. If you want to see us, we are always at home. Sign, the Konigsberg. Now, let's not forget this is a delta in Africa. There's a lot of diseases that went around. And back then, it's not as if the men lined up for their shots before deploying. By mid-January, the mosquitoes and polluted water began to, began to take its toll. Aboard the Konigsberg, there were dozens of cases of malaria, and two sailors even died from typhoid. And naturally, more deaths followed in an environment like this during this period of time. The German warship became this sort of floating vessel for disease. Eventually, Commander Luf was persuaded to hand over 100 sailors to the Schutztruppe because they were just sitting around getting sick on the boat. At the mouth of the delta, where it meets the sea, lies an island just to the east. It's called Mafia Island. And during this time, the Germans held it with just 12 Europeans and 40 Ascaris. I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but an Ascari is a native or colonial German soldier. So they held Mafia Island, which was a perfect spot to scope out any oncoming ship into the Delta. The island is only about 20 or so miles from the entrance to the river. They held it, that is until the British brought in troops from Zanzibar on January 15th. With the help from the Fox and the HMS Pyramus, they overtook the island. The British were tightening their grip on the Germans. After the loss of Cutler, King Hall persuaded the Air Department of Admiralty to bring him more pilots. He received two more on February 20th. Lieutenant John Tollett Cole and Lieutenant H.E. Watkins, both marine aviators. With their crew of 16 men and two Sopwith airplanes, 
King Hall was back in business. Powered by 100 horsepower Gnome engines, the plan was to load the planes down with extra gas, four bombs, and an observer. Lieutenant Cole's first attempt, he couldn't even get the plane off the water. When he finally got airborne, he was bombless, no observer, and with only one hour's worth of fuel. And even then, he couldn't get the SOP with above 500 feet. Again, these planes are still relatively new. Another problem for the Sopwith directly related to Africa is the humidity. The propellers were made out of wood and the moisture began to warp them, which, which is never good for a plane and or pilot. In April, King Hall received more seaplanes. On the 25th of April, Lieutenant Cole lifted off with an observer and rose to 1,200 feet. Set out to find the Konigsberg, he did just that. They found the small cruiser looking fresh and clean. He managed to get a picture with an ordinary box camera. Of course, this came with the price of being shot at multiple times from rifles and machine guns. The Konigsberg appeared to be trapped, but in a part of the river that wouldn't be possible to get British warships inside. And the Germans had the river well guarded. Lieutenant Watkins and his observer were shot down on May 5th. Cole had to land his seaplane to rescue them. It was getting really hairy for the planes prowling around the river system at this time. During the outbreak of the Great War, a British steamer, the Rubens, had been docked in Hamburg's port. It was immediately confiscated and put into German service and renamed, on paper, the Kronborg and was disguised as a Danish freighter. The captain, Lieutenant Carl Christensen, even looked Danish and spoke Danish. The belly of the Kronborg was packed with 1,000 shells for the Konigsberg's 105mm guns, thousands of rounds of 47mm, 1,800 rifles along with 3 million rounds of ammo, two new 60mm guns, dynamite, medicine, coal, food, and more. The ship headed out of Hamburg on the 18th of February, making its way south down the Atlantic, hooking around Cape of Good Hope, finally arriving to a small island north of, north of Madagascar called Aldabra Island on the 9th of April. Aldabra Island is also known as Aldabra Atoll. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Aldabra is one of the largest atolls in the world. An atoll is a ring-shaped island with a coral ring around it. Well, Lieutenant Christensen's disguise seemed to work. He even exchanged wireless greetings with two British freighters during the trip. When the Kronborg anchored at the island, Luf made a dash for the open sea. The crew seemed to be motivated, and why wouldn't they? They've been sitting idle for quite some time, just getting sick. They were ready for some excitement and they were ready to get out to sea. Commander Luf was big on radio silence at this time, but Christensen had to break it on the evening of April 10th to contact Luf. The Kronborg lifted anchor and steamed off to meet the Konigsberg 400 miles northeast of the Delta. A German signalman wrote in his diary, 13 April. 
Today was the day on which we were to have run out, but the English were waiting for us and put a thick line through all our calculations. They lay outside the mouth with three cruisers and two auxiliaries. This overwhelming strength was too much for us. Everything points to the fact that the English knew our Morse code and have caught our exchange of telegrams with the ship." End quote. This signalman was accurate. This, the message indeed had been intercepted by the French and relayed to King Hall. Truth is, though, the German naval code had been broken some time before the Konigsberg popped out of hiding. Every message between Luf and Christensen after that was intercepted, even the final one, ordering the Kronborg to Manza Bay north of Dar es Salaam. The HMS Hyacinth caught up with her and pummeled the ship until it was ablaze. Christensen ran the ship ashore. The crew rushed the shoreline, and after being chased by British shells and bullets, they bolted for the tree line. Christensen was hit by shrapnel in his right leg. Blood soaked his pants until he passed out. A couple of his crew bandaged his leg and helped him to his feet. But he was too weak, so they built a makeshift litter. And then finally, out of the jungle came a detachment of Ascaris to rescue the crew. Luckily, no man from the Kronberg was killed during this madness. <clears throat> As the Ascaris showed up, the Hyacinth sent boarding parties to destroy the Kronborg, but the Ascaris drove them back with machine gun fire. The Hyacinth had nothing to respond with, and about mid-afternoon, it steamed away. This was considered a terrible mistake by the Hyacinth because the Kronborg carried all those supplies intended for the Konigsberg. Christensen had, was taken to a hospital outside Tanga, while a salvage operation was immediately put underway. Two divers supplied by Luf, along with soldiers, sailors, and 2,500 Arabs and Africans, they labored to bring almost all the goods from the ship ashore. Yes, the ship was destroyed, but a good chunk of the resupply was still good. Another thing that Kronborg did for the crew of the Konigsberg, it instilled hope. It let them know the fatherland was well aware of their situation and they were responding. You'd have to imagine they were probably starting to feel abandoned at this point. So this was a warm welcome. Just about all the crew from the Kronborg was absorbed into the chutes through except Christensen. He was returned to Germany aboard a neutral ship. King Hall made excuses after the war regarding the great salvage operation in Africa. He basically said it was impossible to hold a man of war in the enemy harbor day and night, even weeks. And because of this, it was impossible from stopping the enemy from salvaging their goods. There might be some truth in this. Leaving a lone ship by itself could have been disastrous, but outside the river, I believe the British had the upper hand. Interesting fact, the Kronborg or Rubens remained half submerged for more than 40 years until it was raised and cut for scrap in 1957. And I believe the salvage company took the coal that was aboard, which was still good, and they sold it, 
who knows for how much. Well, at this point, not only had the Royal Navy had enough of the Konigsberg, so did London. Shortly after the Kronborg was cut down, a message was intercepted and taken to Louf. London had ordered the Konigsberg to be destroyed at any cost. And the Royal Navy was among the best during this time. But their ships just couldn't get into the delta. The water level was too shallow. There had to be some way to reach the German small cruiser. And that way was by three shallow river gunboats called monitors resembling the U.S. Navy's ironclads used during the Civil War, or sort of resembling them. They really look cool, though. But let me back up a small bit, because I have to tell you how these monitors came into play. Before the Great War broke out, Brazil commissioned Great Britain to build them three ships that could patrol the shallow rivers of South America. They were built to serve one purpose to seek and destroy in low-level waters. They were completed right when the Great War broke out. They were named Solomos, Mediera, and Havery. But before they could be delivered, the British government confiscated them and renamed them Humber, Severn, and Mercy. And I say they resemble the ironclads. They kind of do in a way, but just a lot more modern for the time. These new monitors had fancy finished brass work, oak paneling, Turkish carpets, lavish curtains, and fine ornaments. You'd actually question if they were actually gunboats. Yes, they were. I won't go into all the specs. You can look that up if that interests you. But I'll say they each had two 6-inch and two 4.7-inch guns. Now... When the Royal Navy first gave these monitors a test run, the conclusion was they were way too slow and uncontrollable in the open sea when the wind was working against it. But remember, these ships weren't meant for the open sea. They were built for the sole purpose of patrolling the rivers in South America. The British Navy would find a suitable position for them to be used, though. They were first sent to the Belgian coast to support the bigger guns. But because the monitors had to work so close to shore, they often came under fire from German field artillery. In turn, the ships did suffer some damage along with casualties. Winston Churchill himself credited the monitors with assisting the Belgian army, preventing the fall of Calais, Dunkirk, and Boulogne. In March of 1915, the monitors were sent to dockyards for an upgrade. They were to be strengthened, and it was rumored among the crew that the ships were going to be sent to Gallipoli to support the Dardanelles campaign. And those rumors were correct. They were put to sea, each monitor being pulled by two tugs. They made their way down the European coast, through the Straits of Gibraltar, onto Malta. But... It appeared they arrived too late to support the Dardanelles plan. Then, it occurred to somebody in the Royal Navy 
that the three ships will be perfect for Admiral King Hall's issue with the Konigsberg at the Rufiji Delta. Thus, on April 28, 1915, the Severn and Mercy left Malta. Still being pulled by tugs, they made the 5,000-mile journey through the Suez Canal, into the Red Sea, and then south along the East African coast where the Rufiji mouth laid. On June 3rd, they reached Mafia Island. This was no small operations by any means. In fact, this had evolved into quite a large operation just to sink a single warship or small cruiser. A lot of effort and I'll say expense on the Royal Navy's dime was put into this. Other ships and crews were brought in just to support the monitors. As they're being tugged, the crews of the Severn and Mercy had to be housed on these ships while both crews worked days on end preparing the monitors for battle. The decks of the boats had to be protected with sandbags. Steel plates were also laid to protect them from fire. The bridge was camouflaged with hammocks. Both were repainted to blend in with the jungle. They were also loaded with tons of empty kerosene tins to help with buoyancy if struck below deck. Guns were mounted and prepared along with ammunition. The men put in a lot of hours to ensure this operation was going to be a success. On the 12th of June, the Severn fired up its motor after being idle for three months. Shortly after, the Mercy fired its motors too. Both prepared to enter the maze of the Rufiji. One issue right out the gate was the Konigsberg being screened by the jungle. The German crew apparently did a good job hiding it from any boat at river level. However, planes could spot it. King Hall needed a team of pilots to scout out the ship, then relay its position to the monitors. On the 22nd of June, a modified airstrip was constructed on a Mafia Island to support the flight operations. And by this time, two Henry Farhams and two Quadrons had arrived to help. On the 5th of July, anything aboard the monitors that wasn't necessary was removed. Items such as mess tables, doors, beds, chairs. Even the crew's spare clothing was put aboard the HMS Trent, who'd been with the monitor supporting the crew. It was mission essential items only. On the 6th of July, the monitors entered the mouth of the Rufiji. Warships took their position to give support in case the Konigsberg fled to the open waters. It was the early morning hours, the time when the light is barely breaking through. The light mist from the river almost looking like steam from the summer heat. All that can be heard were the sounds of the jungle and the engines of the monitors creeping their way along the river. Severn was in the lead. Somehow, Captain Loof had got word of the monitors being at Mafia Island. Historians believe he was made aware of this as far as six days before the monitors entered the mouth. The Konigsberg was prepared for their arrival. One of the officers was leading a patrol when he spotted through the morning mist the monitors approaching. He later wrote in a letter, shadowy looking ships coming rapidly up the middle of the channel. The monitors advanced gaily up the stream 6,000 to 7,000 yards, as if they were at home. Lieutenant Commander Paul Cool. 
In the next moment after being spotted, Cool ordered the shore parties to open up on the monitors. It was like a swarm of bullets and shells all at once. I'm sure this was quite a surprise to the crews. But this is going to expose one of the biggest flaws of this story. A decision by Captain Loof that will end up being the doom of the Konigsberg. The commander of the shore party, or the Delta Defense Force, which was their actual name, he pleaded to Loof to place 105mm guns instead of the 47mm guns that Loof had put on shore. Loof had refused this request though. Had the Germans opened up with the 105s, the monitors wouldn't have been able to survive. Instead, the 47s were more like a thorn in their side. Not only with them being protected, but also with quick action, the monitors quickly took them, took them out. The Germans did attempt to launch a torpedo, but the Severn's 4.7 inch gun put a stop to it. By 0623 hours, the monitors brushed off the defense force's ambush and pushed forward until anchoring at a safe distance, estimated to have been around 10,000 to 14,000 yards from the Konigsberg. Around an hour before the monitors anchored, Flight Lieutenant H.E. Watkins had taken off from the airfield carrying six bombs. Watkins spotted the German warship, but failed to hit the target. All he managed to do with the bombs is make wood chips out of the trees. Several minutes later, another plane showed up to act as a spotter for the monitors. At 0617, the two pilots, Lieutenant J.T. Cole and Sub-Lieutenant Arnold, relayed the locations to the Severn. By 0648, the Severn was firing her six-inch guns. A signalman aboard the Konigsberg later wrote, we were sitting, all of us, at the breakfast tables. The middle watch were still lying in their hammocks when suddenly the cry rang out, clear ship for action. The alarm gong sounded and in a second, all were at their battle stations. I was signaler at the central and first division. Hardly were we at our stations when our guns opened fire on, as I later learned, two airmen who were approaching the Konigsberg. Shortly afterwards, the signal arrived that the monitors Mercy and Severn had run up the mouth, keeping both banks under sharp machine gun and rifle fire. The Severn's first shots fell short around 200 yards. The Konensberg's answering first shots also fell short, but shortly after, it began to tighten its shots. Shells were now exploding just yards away from the monitors. The Konensberg was still a bigger and better ship, it was firing four salvos compared to the monitor's one. The Mercy seemed to be getting the worst of it out the gate. By 0740, she was struck twice. One shell knocked a six-inch gun out of commission, killing four sailors. But by 0750, a shell from the Severn struck the Konensberg, killing one as it entered the officer's galley. A second shell crashed into the upper deck, killing two more. Followed by a third shell that struck the signal bridge, killing another seaman. The monitors were hitting back. The German ship, ship was getting hit hard, but definitely wasn't out of the fight. Her rounds were getting extremely close to the Severn at this point. Here was another detrimental blow for Luf. 
As the Konigsberg was honing in on the Severn, Captain Fullerton ordered the monitor to shift positions. As it did, a German spotting position was spotted. This position was called Pemba Hill. The Severn six inch Lydite shell obliterated the spotter's position. Luf's gunners had depended on this, and now it was gone. The Konensberg was firing blind. But the monitors, they still had eyes in the sky. The planes continued to provide adjustments. By mid-afternoon, I say that, but by mid-afternoon, the monitors had fired 635 shells, four of which had struck the Konensberg. I know that's not really a great batting average at all, but this was 1915. You got to cut them a little slack. It was getting late. The tide was falling. The monitor's guns were overheating and the Konigsberg was still firing back. So the monitors made their way back out to sea under protection of the British warships. By 1630, they were back in safe hands. The crew was given a proper supper and well-deserved rest. This wasn't the case for the crew of the Konigsberg. One of the shots from the monitors had pierced the hole below the waterline. The fore and aft bunkers of the stokehold were filling with water. For those that don't know, the stokehold is the compartment where the boilers fired or get stoked, in this case with coal. All available hands were put to work. They also had to bury the dead and evacuate the wounded. The monitors took a couple days rest and during this time, Luf had all combustible material removed from the ship. He even reestablished a communication line at Pemba Hill. Air reconnaissance reported the German ship indeed was damaged, but was still in the fight. At 10.30 hours on July 11th, the monitors returned to finish the job. They first had to again run the gauntlet of the German shore party, but this time with the support of cruisers offshore. Lieutenant Commander Kuhl later wrote, It was a wonder that today, after two bombardments, I am still alive. The first on 6th July was very sharp and damaging, but child's play compared to the second on 11th July. The dispiriting effect is so great as to make one ill to think of it trying with two or three men and rifles to stand up against such a bombardment, knowing one could do nothing. Lieutenant Commander Kuhl was clearly shaken over this event. Mercy took up her same position, but Severn continued another 1,000 yards. Mercy soon was struck twice by shells, one hitting the captain's cabin. Severn also was taking fire, but she was determined to end the fight. She opened up her guns. The eighth salvo hit the Konigsberg. Several minutes later, seven more hits were made. But like a Rocky Balboa movie, the Konigsberg was getting hit, but still kept fighting back. At 12.49, Cole and Arnold observing from the plane above signaled, we are hit. As it was going down, Arnold the Observer sent corrections to Severn by wireless transmission. This brought the Severn's fire from the forward to a midship on the Konigsberg. Cole put the plane down in the crocodile-infested water close to the Mercy. The plane, after touching the water, did a somersault and capsized. 
Arnold was thrown right over Cole. Cole, who forgot to unsnap his belt, went under. His feet became entangled, so he kicked his boots off and tore off his leggings and trousers. Arnold helped fish him out. Both began frantically swimming for the mercy when quickly a motorboat picked them up. At 13-16 hours, there was a series of violent explosions aboard the Konigsberg. British sailors reported seeing a large mushroom cloud of smoke rising 200 feet above the trees. The German warship's guns had gone silent. The Mercy was ordered to move upstream about 7,000 yards from the Konigsberg. 28 more directed salvos were fired. A hit was scored with the first. The Konigsberg was seen fiercely burning from the bow to the stern. King Hall immediately received a wire which reported, the Konigsberg was finally destroyed. By 1600 hours, the monitors were out of the Delta and were greeted by the Weymouth carrying King Hall. Flags waved saying, well done monitors. German casualties were high. Even Luf had been seriously wounded in the abdomen. He and the other wounded were sent upriver to a field hospital. None of the 105mm guns aboard the Konigsberg were damaged. All were salvaged and pulled by 400 natives to Dar es Salaam. The German ground troops in Africa now had heavier guns than the British, giving the soldiers another gripe towards the Navy. The battle in the Rufiji lasted from 30th October 1914 to 11th of July 1915. 27 British ships were involved consuming an estimated 38,000 tons of coal. Captain Luff was decorated with the Iron Cross First Class and his, in his final report, he wrote, the SMS Konigsberg is destroyed, but not conquered. And that's gonna be it for this episode, folks. Uh, I felt like this was a long one. Definitely needed to get this one out. Um, as I said in the beginning of this episode, I've been learning a lot from Africa and the Great War, but this by far has been my favorite so far. Um, I don't know if it's the naval part, the river, which is the whole scene. I just really enjoyed this one, and I, I hope you did too. Um, it's July 3rd today. Tomorrow's the 4th of July. If you're in America celebrating, if you're here listening to this, have a safe and happy 4th to the rest of you. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for the continued support for the show. Fans are the best. And until next episode, take care, everyone.